0: Hi there, everyone, and thank you for joining me for episode 17 of the Mark Guy Show. I do, I do apologize. I haven't done an episode in a couple weeks now, I think. I've just had a lot going on, both at home and uh, I've had to travel quite a bit for work recently, so I haven't been able to really sit down and take the time to put together a show. I've been jotting down notes. I've got enough content for a couple shows now, so I should have a few out in pretty quick order, I hope. Uh but I'm going to jump right into it today. I'm, I'm, I am going to talk about the debate and about the election. I know that any podcast that talks about politics is going to have to discuss the election. I have tried to discuss the election a decent amount, even though I do think that it ultimately isn't going to affect my life either way, and I don't really care too much about it. I follow it more so that I can discuss it and kind of see, hopefully, what are the overarching trends in American politics, maybe even world politics, and you can see a lot of, you know, a lot of that embodied in the presidential election because that tends to be what people care about the most. They tend to put far more effort, energy, uh, you know, time following it into the presidential election versus any other election, you know, whether it's your mayor or whether it is your state legislator uh, representatives, whether it's your House of Representative uh, member, whether it's your senate representative you know people put far more effort into the presidential election so i think it is important to watch even if we are basically apathetic about who becomes president because it's going to be hillary clinton or donald trump and i've said many times on here i don't think my life is going to change i think both of them are pretty much equally bad and i don't have a horse in the race whatsoever but i will discuss it because i i do think it is important and who is president because the presidential, the office of president has taken on so much power throughout American history. It's expanded far beyond what it was intended by the framers of, of the Constitution and the Founding Fathers. So who, pre, who the president is does impact us. I just think that both of them are kind of equally bad, maybe in slightly different ways. But my life isn't really going to be markedly better or worse under either one, I don't think. But what I want to talk about first is my old friend, Kenneth Rogoff, and I talked about him a few episodes ago. I'll, I'll link to that episode because I discussed it for a while, and I called it the war, on, the war on cash. And a lot of people have used that term. I didn't come up with it, but I think it's a good way to sum up what's going on. And it's kind of an insidious war, kind of a behind-the-scenes war, and they try to make it seem like this will be something beneficial for us to eliminate cash or to eliminate particular denominations of cash so that there are only small bills out there. There are a lot of different proposals and reasons why people think that this would be beneficial. And all of those reasons I think are frankly BS. I think it's all about having control and, and all of those reasons are just, uh, just rationalizing the need for more control. Think they think we can't trust people with cash, cash is just used for criminality, cash gives people freedom that they shouldn't have. I, I think that's at the base of these arguments, and I think I'm, I'm going to go into an article that I read from Kenneth Rogoff, or was it, it was an interview, actually. It was a pretty long interview, so he was able to go deeper into his thoughts, and I think some of the questions kind of caught him off guard, whereas when you're writing an article, when you're writing an editorial, you can craft your message and go back and say, okay, how exactly do I want to say this in the, in the perfect way to make it sound like this is, this is for your best interest? Whereas in an interview, in your ad living a bit, it's harder to do that. You've kind of got to come out and say more truthful things. And politicians are very good at figuring out how to craft their message all the time. But Kenneth Rogoff is not a politician. And I think his underlying biases came out in this interview. So I'll, I'll have a link to it in the uh, on my website on the suggested readings uh, portion. So here are some quotes that that really stuck out to me. So here's the first one quote: There is a very small but strong lobby who pushes very aggressively to keep cash. Also, there are people who just don't think that they should pay their taxes and don't want to be forced to pay their taxes. In the United States, there seems to be a big overlap between the people who want to keep large bills and people who are against stopping people from buying semi-automatic weapons. It's this mentality of, I don't trust the government, the IRS is going to invade me. Of course, that's just a stupid argument. If you have a totalitarian state that wants to take your cash, the government can just inflate. End quote. This probably blew me away the most out of all the quotes I took. That's why I'm leading off with it. But how pretentious does this sound? And, of course, there's going to be a huge overlap between people that believe in gun rights and those that, be- those that believe in the right to hold cash and the right to have options in the media of exchange that they use. Because, fundamentally, they come from the same values. You know, if, if you value individual liberties, think that people have the right to possess what they want to possess, right to do what they want to do, as long as it doesn't infringe on the rights of others – as long as it doesn't infringe on the liberty of others of course there's going to be huge overlap there And i think what rogoff doesn't understand is it's called having principles and being consistent it's it's something that he obviously wouldn't understand he's trying to rack his brain why is there a big overlap between people that that don't want to ban semi-automatic weapons and those that want to hold cash it's because i think generally those people are just distrustful of the government and I think they have a lot of reason to be because the government has consistently infringed upon those rights over time. So, and he even proves that in this quote, the last part is hilarious. So he calls being fearful of the government, a stupid argument, which isn't an argument in and of itself, just saying something is stupid or it violates common sense. That's not an argument, but then he says that the government can just inflate away your cash anytime it pleases as long as it wishes so when the government holds that type of power doesn't it justify those fears that he's ridiculing that he's saying are stupid and also I, I don't get why he wouldn't think that the American people would be scared to death of the IRS so the way that they're able to invade our private lives our private affairs far more than any other arm of government in my opinion because this really impacts every taxpaying American which is a huge portion of the population And if they want to, if they want to make you a target, they can make your life a living hell. So the income tax and its enforcing arm, the IRS, it's become a weapon, and it's something that rightfully scares a lot of Americans. So I think this quote just was, I know I used the word pretentious before, but that's the best way to sum this up. It's saying, I don't get the principles that these people stand on. He doesn't respect those principles. It's one thing to disagree, and I've said that many times on this show. There are other people who are principled that I completely disagree with. I think their principles are wrong, but I acknowledge, okay, you're being consistent. I understand your principles. This is why. This is why I have the principles that I have. But he's not even saying that. He's saying it's a stupid argument. These people are dumb. They're just you know, rednecks that want guns and want to hoard cash and want to prep for doomsday. That's what he's insinuating with this quote. So the next quote is, quote, So I'm trying to find a way to make it difficult to run a human trafficking business or commit extortion of big-scale corruption without necessarily interfering with ordinary people and their day-to-day life. Another quote, I'm doing two here. um, I'm not advocating Bitcoins or other cryptocurrencies as an alternative to cash. Not at all. I think they need to be regulated. End quote. So I'm sorry to tell you, Kenny, but good luck trying to regulate Bitcoin. And I would have liked to have heard, if I was interviewing him, I would have asked a follow-up question. How would regulation of Bitcoin possibly work? Because it's designed to not be regulated. It's designed to be self-regulated. And it's through the internet. and, And, you know, I don't know how you can possibly justify it. And I think he probably doesn't really understand it, which is part of it. And I don't fully understand it either. You know, I've tried to do quite a bit of research because I think it's interesting. But I don't think he fully understands it if he thinks that you can really regulate it. You can try, but I don't, think it's going, I don't think it's going to be cost effective. And I don't think it's going to work. And Bitcoins are an alternative to cash, no matter how hard he may wish otherwise. So if you try to impose cash limits, people are going to be incentivized to use Bitcoin. That's inevitably going to happen. People are going to look for other alternatives of, of exchange. People that like to hold cash maybe because of, its, because of its anonymity. They may move to Bitcoin. And of course he's not advocating Bitcoin because it destroys his whole argument. So when people have alternatives to cash, it means that getting rid of cash isn't going to solve whatever problems you think it's going to solve. Because those people are just going to move into Bitcoin or move into other, other media of exchange so another quote if we take away the larger denominations it's one very important step toward enabling central banks to have much more effective tools in fighting a financial crisis and in particular to use negative interest rates in an effective way right now they're very limited because if you set interest rates too negative big players will, will hoard cash end quote so this is what i talked about when i discussed the real reason for doing this i talked about control but i also talked about he wants the central bank to have far more influence than it does now and this is dangerous i mean if you've listened to me talk on this podcast you know how much i've criticized low interest rates and negative interest rates are low interest rates on steroids and all that low interest rates have done is inflate another bubble which i wish we had let fully burst during the great recession because all we did was inflate it back up again but if you allow the Fed to take rates negative, which I think they would love to do if they could get away with it, it's going to exacerbate these problems even more. I mean, they've already gotten pretty bad. You look at the Fed's balance sheet, is at $4 trillion. interest rates have been at effectively zero for eight years now. Stock market bubble has inflated again. You know, it keeps hitting record highs when there aren't earnings there to support that Companies are not earning the money to justify these high, valu- these, these high valuations. It's all because another bubble has been inflated by severely artificially low interest rates. So this scares me because I think this is where a lot, of, a lot of these anti-cash people are coming from, that they want the central bank to have more power to manipulate interest rates. And I think anybody that's been following interest rates knows this has been a dangerous policy. It has done far more harm than good, and it's going to continue to, to do far more harm than good. And now central banks around the globe are taking rates to zero or close to zero or negative. So this probably scared me. You know, that, that first quote I had read, the one I called pretentious, that was one that stood out to me the most because I thought, wow, this really encapsulates his argument and why I think it's so ridiculous and why I think he's not relatable to people with these principles and he's not putting himself in their shoes. But I think that this quote about the central banks shows one of the real motivations behind this. And it came out in this interview and that's why it was great to be able to read through this long interview because I think he had to come out and say the truth more. So another quote, what I imagine is that negative rates are important if we have another deep recession, another financial crisis. And this is related to the the previous quote that I read, but this should scare each and every one of us. So this isn't about fighting crime. It's not about reducing tax evasion. It's about giving the central bank even more control over over our monetary policy. And the Fed has failed time and time again, especially over the last about 20 to 25 years. The Fed has done a horrible job. Greenspan inflated the stock market bubble, kept rates too low for too long. That popped. They took rates low again, reinflated the housing bubble. When that burst, they now reinflated a stock market bubble. And there's also an automobile bubble. And that will burst, and then probably they will try to react again with negative rates, which is why this plays right into their hands. So I wanted to go into this in some depth, into the quotes that he said in this piece because I want to get inside the minds of these anti-cash people, and it really is an anti-freedom thing. I'm trying not to, to dive into cliches, but I think having the freedom to use the media of exchange that you want is part of freedom. It's part of economic freedom, and economic freedom is very important to overall freedom. And when I see people trying to advocate giving us less freedom in that realm, it scares me. And I talked about, even before having read this, when I talked about that original article that he wrote, it really is about wanting to have control and wanting to give the central bank more power, both, both of which take power away from the individual and take away from our power locally. And I think that's the direction where a lot of people are realizing that's where we want to trend. They see how beneficial freedom and local power and individual power has been in their own personal lives when it comes to buying products being able to to buy the exact product that you want online rather than having to rely on what's in the sears Roebuck catalog i think people are waking up to that but then these professional economists part of the academic elite don't like that because they, they like having control because it gives them more power gives them more opportunity to earn money and lets them influence the rest of society so that was what i wanted to discuss there now i now i will get into the election which i'm sure everybody was waiting with bated breath for me to discuss so the the presidential debate was a couple nights ago and it went pretty much as planned i mean as as expected as i expected Hillary Clinton came out, she had her canned responses, she was well scripted, pretty well spoken, you know, she's obviously smart, and Trump came out and it did not look like he was prepared, and he just wanted to turn it into a brawl, going back and forth. And some people like that, I was kind of surprised afterwards, fewer people said that Clinton won compared to what I would have thought, but I guess it shouldn't come as a surprise with how this entire election has gone, this entire election cycle, because Trump has continually acted that way, and his popularity has generally trended upwards, and he probably has as good of a chance now at winning as he has had throughout the entire cycle. So it shouldn't come as a surprise I guess. But both of them scare me pretty equally. So me saying that Clinton won, it's just because she kind of played it safe, she didn't get sucked into his stuff, she did a pretty good job of zinging back at him far better than i'd expected she would but they both scare me and they're they scare me in different ways but neither one is necessarily worse than the other in terms of how they scare me so where trump scares me and it was right at the opening of the debate but he comes out with his ultra protectionism talking about if companies want to make products elsewhere well then we just got to charge tariffs up the ass to them when they try to bring the products back into the country and gives absolutely no credit to free trade or the benefits of free trade. And I've said on this podcast many times that free trade has been a good thing. It has improved the lives of all Americans and it has improved especially the lives of poor Americans. But Trump has ran his entire campaign on saying that it's because China and Mexico are taking our jobs we need to impose tariffs and prevent our companies from leaving so rather than fixing the actual problem which is why are these companies leaving here he wants to attack the symptoms which is a recipe for disaster and that scares me because things will get more expensive it'll you know the cost of living will rise and it'll be more difficult to sustain our current standard of living so that was what stood out to me the most about him also he talked about just basically personal liberty type of things and endorsing stop and frisk criticizing clinton for taking the fifth amendment you know kind of basic civil liberties that we as americans have due to the constitution he advocates violating those in a lot of instances and he advocates violating those to enforce illegal immigration you know to enforce immigration policy and deport illegals i've talked about immigration before on this show too and i don't you know want with the way our welfare system works and having a welfare state i don't want unrestricted immigration but i also don't want the immigration policies enforced by violating a bunch of bunch of people's constitutional rights and you will inevitably by trying to enforce those the way that he's talking about you will inevitably violate some people's constitutional rights and i am firmly against that I'm not firmly against deporting them when it's found out that they're here illegally, as long as that's, you know, as long as that information is received through legal methods. You know, as long as it's not by going and knocking on doors or stopping people in the streets or pulling people over because they look like they might be an illegal immigrant or something like that. I don't want to see that happen, but it seems like his rhetoric is going down that path. And that scares me, too. I think he is scary for personal liberties. Clinton, on the other hand, she scares me when it comes to economics. And she uses these canned phrases that the left has used for generations. I mean, you could go back to Lyndon Johnson. William Jennings Bryan, over 100 years ago, used the same kind of rhetoric too. But she kept saying trickle-down economics and trumped up Trickle down economics or I, I think that was the term that she was using. But first of all, I wanna get it out in the open. I don't think I've ever discussed this on this show, but trickle down economics isn't a real thing. They they act like trickle down economics is it's proposed by certain economists, certain free market economists, and that's what they believe. They just believe that what if you do things that are good for the rich, then it's gonna trickle down to the rest of everybody else. But all that is is just rhetoric. That is just politics. No economist has ever advocated anything called trickle-down economics. And I know that Thomas Sowell has written on this. I need to find an article a, an, an article with him lambasting people for using this term as if it's something valid, as, as if it's a valid criticism of anyone. So I need to find that and, and link to it because it's a great read. Anything by Thomas Sowell is a great read, by the way. But she kept saying this. She said it over and over again. She said trickle-down economics definitely at least a handful of times and and said that's what Trump is advocating. And I'm not defending Trump's economic policies whatsoever, but Clinton would oppose any free market solution or anything to reduce taxes on the wealthy because she said, oh, that that would be trickle-down economics, even if taxes were reduced on the rest of people. Anything that makes the rich better off, apparently, is trickle-down economics to Clinton. And Clinton is proposing additional taxes on the wealthy, which I think is also a recipe for disaster. Once again, like I said with Trump, how he's talking about wanting to restrict companies from leaving or wanting to impose huge tariffs on those that do leave and want to bring their goods back into the U.S. What Clinton is doing is talking about the symptoms rather than the actual cause. And the actual cause in the federal government of the deficits is spending we take in plenty of tax revenue spending has skyrocketed the the issue is not on the revenue side it's on the spending side but she does not want to attack that because it's politically unpopular but what she can do is she can sick the 99 percent on the one percent and say oh all we need to do is tax the one percent more and we'll all be fine You know, the the 99% will be fine, even though she's definitely part of the the 1% herself. But that's her rhetoric. And then the majority, the populace, think, oh, that would be good for me. You know, as long as it's not me that's being taxed more, then we're all good. But what's happened with taxes throughout American history? The income taxes first proposed was only on the richest Americans. It was only, I believe, 3%. Of their income above a certain high threshold like over a million dollars in today's dollars so only the richest people paid that tax and it was a small percentage of their amount of their income above a very high threshold and people were all for it because that oh it's not gonna affect me but then what happened gradually that bar was lowered more and more people were subjected to the tax the marginal rates continued to increase and it was always sold the same way it was always sold as well the richest are paying more now so they're bearing a disproportionate share of this so you should be for it because now more money is coming in versus what you were paying you know initially it was zero and then you know maybe i don't i don't know the exact progression i'll I'll try to find an article on that and link it in the suggested readings but you know then maybe the middle class may have been subjected to a one percent tax where the the taxes on the rich were raised to Seven or eight percent, and it was sold to them as you know, you're only gonna be paying one percent, and now we're gonna be getting five percent more from all these very rich people. So, this is a good deal for you. That's how it's always been sold, that's how they're selling it now. But if you want to talk about something trickling down, tax rates are what trickle down because they initially get imposed on the rich and then they trickle down to the rest of us. So, I'm scared of her rhetoric when it comes to that. Then, on a related matter. I hate the politicians speak, the politics speak, where they talk about we need to make investments in this or this. We need to invest in education or invest in clean energy. And this is such a verbal sleight of hand where really what they're talking about is taking your tax dollars and investing it in their pet projects and what they favor. They're not investing in anything. These aren't, this isn't private money. This isn't, you know, private investors deciding this is where we want to allocate our resources because we think this is the best place to earn the best return. That's investing. What they're talking about doing when they say invest in certain things is they want to take your money and divert it to the areas that they want to divert it. And whereas private investors, that's entirely voluntary, where the people who give them money to invest, that's done voluntarily and then they need to go and find the projects that they want to go invest in and they're motivated by profit and loss people in government are not motivated by profit and loss and so there's no incentive to cut costs or to divert your money to to where you'll get the most bang for your buck there's not that incentive and what happens inevitably is we get huge failures or we get horrible returns on investment because first of all the people who are planning where to spend that money are not experts and think about if you're giving somebody your money to invest you're going to give it to a specialist you're going to give it to somebody who really knows what they're doing ideally some people obviously get swindled but on the average that's what you're looking for so if you want to invest in commercial real estate you're going to find an expert in commercial real estate and let them invest your money for you because they're gonna know exactly all, all the markets all the details they're gonna know far more than you do obviously and they're gonna know pr- pretty much far more than just about anybody else out there but in government that doesn't happen you don't have the same specialization because there's not the incentive to because it doesn't, ultimately doesn't really matter what the profit and loss is from those projects because the money's already been spent whatever political boost you can get from it is short-term that's the point they're probably out of office already by the time the results really can be seen so there's not there's not the profit and loss incentive and that's that's another thing that really stuck out to me about what Clinton said and I would love to have seen Trump hammer her on those things but I think he's incapable of he he has his rhetoric and that's what he just wants to get across and He's kind of incapable of it being a nuanced back and forth. And nobody should have expected a nuanced back and forth from him, of course, if they've been watching this entire uh, presidential campaign cycle. But basically both of them scare me. And I think my life probably will be unchanged or equally slightly better, equally slightly worse, no matter which one of them becomes president and and how i'm rationalizing it and how i think we all should be approaching this is i need to figure out in my own life what can i do to optimize to optimize it i can't control these things that are going on around me you know my vote doesn't matter my vote's not going to decide it's not going to decide who becomes president and we all should have accepted this by now though people still are rabid supporters of one versus the other a lot of people are but what can i do to improve my own life and that's what we should be using the time that, the time that we're online. You know, saying oh Trump this or Clinton that. We should be focusing instead on how can I improve my life. And part of that is looking at your local governments. So whether it's your city government or your town government or your school board or your state government, that's where you can you can have a say and you could potentially sway those elections. And you can have a personal relationship maybe with some of your representatives who actually can impact your life. And you have some control over how they may impact your life. Whose president will impact your life in some way, but you don't have any control over it. It's one person now representing 330 million Americans. They don't care about you, but your local representative has to care about you because you probably hold some sway in your community. You could sway your friends to vote a certain way or to believe a certain way and you can you know you can hold some influence over the outcome of an election or over a discussion over particular policies so what i would love to see is for us and everybody that realizes this to start diverting your energy from following national politics and specifically the presidential election and instead focusing on what you can do locally and that's just on the government side but obviously also devote energy to how can i improve my life on the economic side and you know on the family side that's what we can do to improve our lives and if we all do that if we all improve our lives it almost is irrelevant who is president yes the president could get us involved in a war and or into some major conflict that affects each and every one of our lives it could destroy the economy again um there are a lot of things that could happen but those things are going to happen regardless of what you do so all you can do is be the most prepared and, and optimize as much as possible to be able to prepare for whatever happens so that's how i'm trying to approach this and i hope that a lot of you are as well because i think that's all that we can do when it feels so like i feel so pessimistic about how this is going to turn out and what's going to ha- what's going to continue to happen on the national stage especially in the executive branch so thank you for joining me again I should have another episode out later this week I'm hoping Uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to discuss yet I've got a few topics at hand so hopefully I'll have a couple of those out have a fantastic rest of your week and uh, enjoy the beginning of fall